Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club, and thank you for being here. What a great crowd. Um, I'm Marisa Lagos. I am correspondent at KQED for our Politics and Government desk, and I co-host the Political Breakdown podcast. A few reminders. <laughs> thank you. Congressman Schiff's been on it. Um, <laughs> a few reminders before we get started. Today's program is being recorded, so we do ask that you silence your cell phones for the duration of the program. And if you have questions for Congressman Schiff, you can fill them out on the question cards on your seats um, or online. You can do it in the YouTube chat. Thanks to everyone joining us at home. Now it's my pleasure to introduce Congressman Adam Schiff, who, as many of you know, is running to be California's next U.S. Senator. Thank you. Congressman Schiff is in his 12th term representing California's 30th Congressional District. He is a senior member of the House Committee on the Judiciary and a recognized leader on national security and foreign policy issues. He, you may remember, led the first House impeachment inquiry and served as lead impeachment manager. We're in San Francisco. (laughs) During the Senate impeachment trial of President Trump, he also served as a member on the January 6th Select Committee. Congressman Schiff, welcome back to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. It's great to be back. And thank you all for coming. Yeah. I don't know if I've seen this room this packed in a couple of years. So are you running for something? Is there? I, as a matter of fact, I am. Um, all right. Well, we're going to talk about that race um, and everything. But I thought it would be nice to start a little bit further back and talk a little bit about your biography and how you got here. Um, I know you grew up in Massachusetts, and many folks here might be surprised to know your dad was a Republican. Uh, actually, my mother was the Republican. Oh, your mother. Uh, my my father uh, is ninety five, and he is very much a Democrat. Okay. I, um, apologize to Mr. Schiff Senior. In fact, uh, my my father uh, recently asked me what I thought of Kevin McCarthy, and I, I don't know what the rules are. Am I allowed to use obscenity here? Um, I'll have to check. I'll have to check. Are you they able to? Are it. you able to bleep that out? Yeah. Um, so he asked me what I thought of Kevin McCarthy recently, and. I said, well, I try to keep it clean with my dad. Um, I don't think too highly of him. I, I think he's a bad egg. I used a little of the vernacular of his day. And uh, his response was, well, then, as my bubby used to say, fuck him. Um, uh, to, which, to which I responded, Dad, I don't think that's what bubby used to say. <laughs> Um, and his reply was, no, but it was strongly implied. Um, so he's, he's very much a Democrat. My mother was a lifelong Republican, and I just had the most wonderful experience last week, which uh, continues to happen to me, um, even though she's been gone for 15 years. Uh, and that is someone came up to me at an event and said, I got a call from your mother. And I knew exactly what they meant when I was first running for office about 25 years ago. My mother uh, uh, and my father uh, were living in Florida. They were retired. And my mother got a Watts line so that she could call voters from Florida and urge them to vote for her son. And I'll tell you, there is no better candidate, no better campaigner than the candidate's mother. Uh, And she would tell me how she would get a prospective voter on the phone and... uh, they would say, well, Ms. Schiff, I'm going to vote for you. And I always gave her the Republicans to call. Uh, so I gave her the tougher voters. And uh, I'm going to vote for your son, 
But I want to ask you, because you've called me, but I want to ask you one question because I want to make sure of this before I do. Are you really Adam Schiff's mother? <laughs> and uh, she would say, yes, I am. Because if I find out you're not really his mother, I'm going to be very upset. And she says, I think I should know, and I am. But, but I think some voters were a little suspicious that yeah. I had a bevy of older Jewish women calling, <laughs> uh, pretending to be my mother. Um, but it, it, it's so nice when people remind me of getting a call from her because they never forgot it. And it, yeah. it, it, uh, Better than the robocalls, probably. Oh, yes, call from, very much so. From your mom. Well, I mean, what did you learn growing up in a household where your parents didn't agree on everything politically? And, like, how have you carried that forward? We're in such a polarized time. But I think, you know, people are still hungry to kind of understand that and understand how they can maybe heal some of those rifts in their own families. Yeah. Um, you know, it was never acrimonious in our family. Uh, my, uh, my mother was what you would have called a Rockefeller Republican. Um, her father, uh, my grandfather, was a Republican county chair. And I have a wonderful photo on my office uh, wall in, in Washington of my grandfather with Eisenhower and Henry Cabot Lodge. And my grandfather's wearing this win with Ike button. Uh, it's, it has a very wonderful kind of last hurrah quality about it. But um, it was never acrimonious, uh, and, you know, I think my brother and I grew up not thinking either party had a monopoly on good judgment all the time. And, um, uh, and they, there was also, I, I think, a, a lot of common agreement about cer around certain things, which I grew up thinking maybe mistakenly were more universally held. For example, when I was first running for the legislature, I remember getting together, together for coffee with a Glendale mayor named Ginger Bremberg. Now, Ginger was about this tall, but she was a powerhouse, and she was a dyed-in-the-wool Republican. And I went to get her advice. I knew that she wasn't going to support me, but she, she knew a lot about the city and the district, and I wanted to pick her brain. And it was right after I had won my primary for the state senate and uh, I told her uh, something that a voter had related to me, which I thought kind of cool. I said, you know, a voter came up to me this week and told me that they voted for me and that they had also voted for Franklin Roosevelt uh, in the course of one lifetime. And I thought that was kind of a cool, if very tenuous connection with Franklin Roosevelt. <laughs> and Ginger looked at me and she said, I would not tell that story in Glendale. Um, <laughs> There are a lot of us, well, there are a lot of Republicans in Glendale, and I could tell she might be one of them, who are still pissed at the Roosevelts uh, and view them as a traitor to their class. And that really surprised me because, you know, among my parents and grandparents, there was uniformity mm. about what Roosevelt had done for the country. Yeah. Well, you came to California first to go to Stanford. Um, you left briefly to go to Harvard. We'll... we'll, we'll forgive you for that. And then you came back to LA. Can you just talk about coming to California from the East Coast? I mean, you're now running to represent this entire state. Like, what was it that drew you here and then back? Yeah. Well, I actually came quite, quite earlier. My father uh, was transferred out West. So when I was nine, we moved to Arizona for two years. And then we moved to the Bay Area when I was oh, 11. Right. Um, so I went to elementary school, middle school, high school, uh, and college in the Bay Area. Um, and, uh, and had a wonderful, I lived in Alamo, Danville. Um, and I recently went to speak at the Rossmore Democratic Club, which prides itself on being the largest Democratic club in the country. 
And what was so wonderful, because it was not far from my old high school, yeah. is I had one person come up to me and ask me who my social studies teacher was. <laughs> Because it was her late husband, Aww. and he was a wonderful teacher. And I had another person come up to me and say that when they moved to California, my mother was their first friend. Uh, and that was wonderful. And, and another that was the mother of my best friend in high school. So it's wonderful coming back to the Bay Area. But we came out here because of my father's work. And, uh, and we came out here because he had a choice when he was being offered a transfer of where to go, like so many other people did, because uh, of the dream of California and the opportunity here uh, was so attractive to my family. And, um, and, you know, part of what drives me today is wanting to preserve that, wanting to recreate that um, when so many people are leaving the state and when life has gotten so challenging uh, my father, when I was a kid growing up uh, in Framingham, um, he was in the Schmata business uh, and the clothing business. Uh, for those of you who don't speak Yiddish, you should learn. Um, but he earned 18000 a year. And on the strength of that single income, my parents bought our first home for $18,000. And I contrast that with today and what young people are facing who are trying to buy a home um, and are saddled with student debt, and even if they weren't, um, the idea of buying a home for your annual income if you're a salesperson would be unthinkable. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, this is the Bay Area now. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. Like... <laughs> but this is, this is really a statewide, nationwide challenge, yeah. is the unaffordability of housing. Yeah. So, um, I don't know if everyone knows, but Adam is married to Eve. It's true. <laughs> Pretty great. Um, tell us about how you two met. Uh, we met on a tennis court, and uh, we had a mutual friend who arranged some doubles tennis who takes credit for fixing us up, but I only give him half credit, uh, and I'll tell you why. Um, after we played tennis, and she had a wicked good double backhand, and I thought, I've got to marry this woman, um, <laughs> I called up our mutual friend, Mark, and I said, what is the scoop with Eve? Um, are you dating? Because if you're not, I'd like to ask her out. And he said, no, no, we're just friends. And so I called up Eve and I asked her out. And then she called up Mark to find out what's the deal with Adam because he just asked me out. And he said, and this is why I only give him half credit, he said, Adam's a good guy, you'll like him, but I would be careful. He's not the committing type. Ooh. Um, I know. And... Uh, are we but, still friends with Mark? <laughs> we are, but, uh, but I only give him half credit. But we've been married now for, I think, 28 years. Um, so I would say I am the committing type. Uh, and uh, and I'm, I mean, she's wonderful. Um, she's also very strong. You'd have to be. Uh, we've been through a lot. Yeah. Um, we were talking about this little backstage. I mean, you have two kids in their 20s as well. But, I mean, the last decade must have been quite challenging at times for your family. I, mean, I know how much attention you get, but I would imagine they feel that as well. Uh, you know, it has been. Um, uh, you know, the death threats that we've received, yeah. uh, some of which get, you know, texted to my wife's phone. And, oh, wow. uh, I had someone at one point send two bullets to my office with the names of our kids on them. Um, and I, I remember coming back uh, home one evening 
and uh, Eve was very upset. It was at night, and she was in the kitchen, and I wasn't used to seeing her so upset, and I thought it was some new threat that had come in. But it wasn't. It was, I think, in the first year of the Trump presidency when I had really become, um, for the first time, uh, Trump's sort of public enemy number one, which made me the public enemy number one on Fox, which made me the uh, you know, public enemy number one for millions of people. Mm-hmm. Um, she said, I can't stand the fact that millions of people just hate you. They just hate you. And I realized uh, that I had had to acclimate to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the first time that Trump attacked me on social media, I was desperate to respond. It was going out to tens of millions of people. I didn't realize at that point there was no way I could really respond uh, in a way that would reach even a fraction of the people that he was talking to. I, In fact, I remember Mike Thompson grabbing my arm on the House floor uh, immediately after. Trump sent out a tweet. The first attack was sleazy Adam Schiff, corrupt this, corrupt that. And Thompson stops me and he says, Adam, you should tweet back. Mr. President, when they go low, we go high, go fuck yourself. <laughs> um, and much as I was tempted, I didn't feel I could do that. Uh, but, but I was desperate to respond because I thought I could respond. And then, you know, the, the attacks became so repeated and I realized there was no way I could speak to such a large audience. And I was just going to have to live with the fact that millions of people were going to think ill of me for completely false reasons, and there was nothing I could do about it. And I would either have to accept that, or I'd have to, I would have to find a new job. Yeah. Well, you're close to Speaker Pelosi, and, I mean, nobody has been attacked, arguably, more than Nancy Pelosi. I mean, she is in every ad. Um, and in talking to her over the years... She does not seem to care. I mean, she, and she talks about it too with members saying, you know, if you need to go out and attack me, just win, baby. Um, how, like, have you gotten any advice from her on how to truly sort of live with it? Because I do think you can say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be okay with this, but you're a human. Like, it's got to be hard. Is there, has she given you any <laughs> words of wisdom? <laughs> I do remember one of the first times I raised it with her. I said, you know, speaker, I'm getting a lot of death threats. And she looked at me and she says, welcome to the club. Uh, I, you know, I, um, I, I have learned so much from, from her. Um, she has been uh, such a formative part of my, my career, but also just studying at the feet of the master. And, um, and, and you're right. I mean, they have spent hundreds of millions of dollars vilifying her. Uh, and you just have to accept it and not let it, uh, not let it disturb you if you can avoid it. I mean, no one likes it, but also not let it deter you in any way. Uh, you know, the thing I take solace from is they go after people they view as effective. They go after people they view as a threat to their anti-democratic um, priorities. And so, you know, like the recent censure... I view it as a badge of honor. I was going to say, it was a bit of a gift, I think, politically, right? Uh, you know, it certainly rallied people to my side. Yeah. And, uh, but at the same time, uh, what a horrible waste of time. Uh, what, a, what another diminution of the institution. I mean, they spent two weeks on censuring me. The first week, they brought up a resolution that censured me and fined me $16 million, the cost of the Mueller investigation, as if I had appointed Bob Mueller, (laughs) 
which I would have been happy to do. I think he's a tremendous public servant. Uh, I told Eve, I'm going to have to get that paper out back if this thing passes. I used to deliver the Oakland Tribune. That's a, a lot of newspapers. But, um, but the opportunity cost of two weeks uh, when we could have been spending two weeks on homelessness or two weeks on fentanyl and, and that epidemic, um, McCarthy has no control over the House. We, we kind of lurch from crisis to crisis and... Um, and, you know, there's a censure resolution against Benny Thompson now for leading the January 6th committee. There are impeachment resolutions against Biden. There's apparently going to be one against Merrick Garland. Uh, you know, it just uh, shows that party's continuing um, devotion to this flawed former president. And it, it warps everything we do in the House now. Um, there's this effort to rewrite history uh, the censure was part of it. There's a resolution they're going to be bringing forward to expunge the impeachments of the former president as if you could actually do something like that. <clears throat> do you think that'll actually pass, though? Because I'm hearing that, I mean, there's a lot of Republicans in Biden districts that are not super thrilled necessarily about voting on that at the same time as we're looking at a potential third indictment against the president for January 6th. Uh, all the same, if they did it, it would it would pass. Yeah. You know, the first time they brought the censure resolution against me, it failed. Um, there were one out of every ten Republicans, almost one out of ten, who voted against it and thought it was absurd to be using censure, which previously actually meant something. It was used to to censure people who were stealing money or embezzlement or whatever. Um, but then the second time they brought it up, Trump said. Uh, issued a statement saying anyone who votes against censuring Adam Schiff will be primary challenged. Well, they stripped the and they stripped $16 the million money. out, which yes. I would assume some members of Congress just wouldn't like that precedent. That's true. But I, I think, honestly, what really motivated them was the threat of a primary. And they all folded like a tent. Mm. Um, one thing Trump has done well uh, is he has kneecapped any one of their members who step an inch out of line. Uh, and and they are um, so devoid of courage on the other side of the aisle. Uh, I think Adam Kinzinger put it really well when he said, "People keep telling me that you know that Liz Cheney and I are courageous. It's not so much that we're courageous as we are surrounded by cowards." Um, and <laughs> by the way, I love the Saturday Night Live parody of our January Sixth Committee. Uh, in which the actor playing Liz Cheney says, people keep asking me, how did I develop such a, a tough core, such a spine of steel? <laughs> well, how do you think you would turn out if Dick Cheney had been reading you bedtime stories? <laughs> <laughs> but we, we desperately, desperately need, and I'm, I, I say this as someone completely unaccustomed to saying nice things about a Cheney, um, but we desperately need the Republican Party to return to being a party of ideology, not this kind of cult around the former president. It, it needs to be a party in which Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger once again have a home. And I do think there's an important opportunity next year, indeed more than opportunity, responsibility uh, in the presidential election to move the country forward. Uh, the Republican leadership in the Congress has made it clear they will not abandon Donald Trump because he's a liar. They're fine with that. Uh, they won't abandon him because he's immoral. They're fine with that, too. 
Uh, they won't abandon him because he's a danger to our national security, as the whole Mar-a-Lago fiasco demonstrates again. I'm convinced they won't abandon him even if he's a convicted felon. But we beat them in 2018 and again in 2020 and again in 2022. If we beat them again in 2024, and God help us if we don't, I think the Republican Party leadership may just decide to abandon him because he's a loser. Because he's a loser. And if not for the sake of our country, then for the sake of the party, they may move on, um, and, and we desperately need them to move on. Yeah. Well, before we get too far into current events, I do want to go back um, and... I, you know, you were a prosecutor far before you got elected to office and ran impeachment hearings and all this. Um, and I think one of the biggest cases you tried was the first successful espionage case against an FBI agent. Um, I think he had been tried like twice before uh, this, your successful conviction. Can you talk a little bit about that case and like what you've brought from that into your work on the Intelligence Committee and beyond? And just being a prosecutor, like why that path before elected office? Yeah. Well, the, the case involved an FBI agent named Richard Miller. Miller was on the uh, counterintelligence squad at the Bureau, which meant that uh, the counterintelligence squad basically has our eyes on foreign spies operating in the United States. And one of the people that he was supposed to uh, watch was a woman named Svetlana Ogorodnikova. Um, and then he was seduced by Svetlana. For some reason, they always seem to be named Svetlana. Um, I'm, like, I'm like, are you sure this wasn't a Hollywood film? Like, <laughs> it wasn't. And uh, he started giving her classified information. And in fact, during the trial, we made use of the Classified Information Procedures Act, SEPA, which is now implicated in the Mar-a-Lago case. So I'm one of the few prosecutors who has experience with, with that law. But uh, what made the case ch challenging to try, and it had been tried by other people the first two times, um, is before he could be arrested, he went into his supervisor's office and laid out a pretty clever defense, which is, I've been secretly meeting with Svetlana. They think they've recruited me, um, but it's a double agent scenario. They think that I, they're using me to spy on us. I'm using them to spy on them. Um, and... Um, so it was a challenging case. Uh, we, we, in the case I tried, we convicted him, and the conviction was upheld. And what I learned, though, was how Russians targeted people. Mm. And that, that has been useful to this day. Uh, you know, they didn't look for paragons of virtue. Um, they didn't look for people who weren't uh, attracted by money. Uh, they looked for people who had, you know, frailties around greed um, who were lascivious, uh, who were ethically uh, compromised. They look for people like Donald Trump, um, <laughs> if I wasn't being explicit enough. Uh, and normally I would say they didn't have such an easy mark, um, but they had an easy mark in Richard Miller. Uh, I, they had an easy mark also um, in a, on a wholly different scale. The Russian government had an easy mark with Donald Trump. Uh, Vladimir Putin had an easy mark in Donald Trump because uh, you could tell that, and you didn't, need, you didn't need a psychological profile of Donald Trump to figure this out. Um, you can get a lot just saying nice things about the guy. And he'll be the first to admit it. Um, well, you know, Vladimir Putin says nice things about him. Uh, well, yeah. Um, if you'll 
take his side in Helsinki uh, against our own intelligence agencies if you'll make excuses. I mean, God help us, you can imagine where we'd be today if Donald Trump were still the President of the United States. Uh, the Ukrainians would have been sold out uh, in a heartbeat. I mean, it does feel confusing some days because, like, the Democrats are defending the FBI and the Republicans are attacking them, and I don't feel like that was necessarily the construct historically. Um, I think Chris Ray <laughs> marveled at the same uh, incongruity. It's wild. So, I mean, I'm assuming both from your work in Congress, but also just being in the DOJ, like you still talk to folks in that world. What do you think it's like for the people who are trying to do this work right now? I think it's awful. Uh, and I remember years ago when the kind of the GOP started attacking the FBI, asking some friends of mine who were still assistant U.S. attorneys, so what's it like in the courtroom when you call an FBI agent as a witness? Um, do they get impeached by the defense counsel because they're part of some deep state conspiracy? And the answer was yes. Yeah. And, and so, you know, juries are going to have a lot less trust of law enforcement. Uh, it, it is so otherworldly, and I'm sure, you know, Chris Ray, the FBI director, testified before the Judiciary Committee that I sit on now when, when McCarthy took me off of Intel, I told Hakeem Jeffries, put me where I can be useful. And he said, well, I'd like you to sit in my seat in the Judiciary Committee. So I'm back to being a senior member of the Judiciary Committee where I'd served years earlier and spending a lot of quality time with Jim Jordan. Um, <laughs> and it is utterly surreal. Uh, you know, as Chris Ray pointed out in the hearing when he's being vilified as some you know, left-wing liberal um, representing a left-wing, you know, left-wing liberal agency, the FBI, it's so laughable considering you know, the conservative, uh, arch-conservative bona fides of Christopher Wray. But having worked with the Bureau now for over 30 years, the idea that this is this mecca of, you know, code pink, liberal, whatever, is absurd. Um, but, uh, but it's also dangerous. When, when McCarthy's first response to Trump getting the most recent target letter is... Well, this is just because he's polling above Joe Biden, which isn't true. But even if it were, um, the idea that the Justice Department is, is potentially going to indict Trump merely for political reasons or, or even partially for political reasons is such a, another um, body blow to our institutions for the Speaker of the House to be making such a, a patently false but destructive claim. Um, uh, it, it is just um, such a disservice to the country, and we're going to see more and more of it. Uh, you know, Trump is openly calling on his allies in Congress to do what they've done now for six years, which is to be his unapologetic criminal defense lawyers um, in the Congress, trying to do his discovery for him, uh, trying to tear down the system. Donald Trump is someone who will tear down the whole house, uh, tear down the whole country um, to suit his ends. And um, I, I think a lot about something the historian Robert Caro once said when he said that power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. It doesn't always reveal us for our best, but it says a lot about who we are. Um, power has revealed a lot about the people who serve in Congress, uh, people who I had thought at one point uh, really cared about their oath of office and the Constitution, but as it turns out, only care about power. 
uh, and keeping it or obtaining it. And this has, this has made our system so fragile. Yeah. Um, before we move on to, to the Senate race, I am curious, since you sat on the January 6th committee, two of the charges outlined in that recent letter um, from Special Counsel Jack Smith were what the committee recommended. Uh, a third is essentially a civil rights crime that he disenfranchised everybody who voted in that election by trying to overturn it. Um, what are your thoughts? I mean, we don't have all the details, obviously, but knowing what you know about the potential strength of this case and kind of just how it interplays, I feel like so much of the conversation right now is just like the calendar timing of all of these. Uh, you know, I, I think that, um, well, first of all, um, the Justice Department waited a long time to begin investigating anyone other than the foot soldiers who broke into the Capitol and beat police officers that day. Um, we were way ahead of the Justice Department investigating the fake elector scheme and the Georgia call and, um, and myriad other ways in which Trump and his enablers sought to overturn a free and fair election. Um, so the department wasted very important, valuable time for, for at least a year. Um, now, I think the appointment of Jack Smith was a real turning point where there was suddenly a sense of, of interest and urgency in those that were even more culpable. Uh, but, but it has meant that this was much delayed, and I'm glad that it appears now to be finally coming to close to fruition. Um, in terms of potential uh, charges and the, the difficulty or strength of the case, um, a lot of it gets down to Donald Trump's intent, his knowledge and intent. And one of the reasons I wanted to do the Georgia hearing of the January 6th committee is um, you don't have to ask what did the president know and when did he know it when you have a friggin' tape-recorded call. Um, when he's on the phone badgering a secretary of state to find the 11,780 votes he needs, which is just one more vote than the other guy. Um, and to me, this is powerful as a former prosecutor because it wasn't just a generic claim of fraud. No, it was, I just need you to find me one more vote than the other guy. Um, and other evidence that really stands out to me is in December, he's on the phone. This, we brought this out during the committee hearings <clears throat> with top Justice Department people, people he appointed. And he's going through the litany of bogus fraud claims. What about dead people voting? Yeah, we looked into that. That wasn't true, or it may have been three or four people out of the whole country. Uh, what about more people voting than there are people in Detroit? Yeah, that's completely bogus. You know, what about suitcases of ballots? Yeah, we look into that. That was bullshit. Um, and, and then he says, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and the Republican congressman. Um, now, you don't get much more powerful evidence of knowledge and intent than this. And this conversation, I think, precedes the conversation with Raffensperger, where he'd had multiple conversations with his own people before that called Raffensperger. So he knows when he's on the phone with the Secretary of State that what he's telling him is all BS. And this is where I think that potential charge of both conspiracy to defraud, but also to deprive people of their rights um, comes in. And, uh, you know, one other thing that I really look at as sort of typifying the consciousness of guilt is on January 6th, 
Donald Trump is on the mall, um, and he's told there's a problem at the magnetometers, but it's not the problem that he used to have, usually would have at his rallies. The problem during the rallies was there would be long lines at the metal detectors because it takes a long time to get through them. The problem on January 6th was that there were no lines at the magnetometers because, as is told to him, they're armed and they don't want their weapons taken away. And his response is, then take down the effing mags. Uh, They're not here to hurt me. And in terms of his knowledge of the danger to the Capitol, his willing to incite violence, uh, his, his unwillingness to do anything about it while the violent attack is going on, and this, to me, is all very powerful evidence. Um, and, you know, I would say, even though it will really test our democracy um, to go through these trials, that the, the more dangerous thing for our democracy would be to give any president or former president the idea, or future president, that if you get that office, you are now above the law. You are beyond reach. That is an idea that would have been terrifying to our founders and should be terrifying for us as well. Well, let's talk about what's next. You are running for U.S. Senate. Um, You would go from being one of 435 House members to one of 100 senators. Um, And yet, I mean, we've seen, as we've been discussing, you've been very high profile, made a huge impact um, on these investigations. Um, Why the Senate and why now? Well, I think that the, the Senate would uh, give me an even more powerful opportunity to, to deliver for Californians and to protect our democracy nationwide. But, but as we've talked a lot about democracy, um, I want to turn to something I've been talking a lot to Californians about, and that's the economy. Uh, I actually think these issues are quite intertwined, uh, that challenges to our, our economy have created the conditions that make it possible for a demagogue Uh, to come along. And this may be a counterintuitive notion at a time when we have historically low unemployment, um, and yet we have tent cities like we did during the Depression. Um, Not as profound as then, but nonetheless more profound than in recent memory. The problem today is not the same problem we had during the Depression when people were out of work. The problem today is that people are working, and they're still not making enough to get by. And um, can I ask, actually, we have an audience question in this very, I'm a millennial teacher at a public school who can barely afford to save for emergencies, let alone for a home. What's your plan to bolster the ever shrinking middle class in California and strengthen labor power? Um, A lot in there. And I know you were out with the SAG-AFTRA employees this week on the picket line, but you know, I do think this question, and especially as one of a hundred senators, because you're not, the governor of California in that role, you're not the president. Like, how do you, what, what kind of policies do you think the Senate, Congress should be looking at? Well, uh, you're you're right. I I was recently on the picket line for SAG-ATRA, but I was also on the picket line a few months ago for LA Unified School District employees. Um, These were the bus drivers, the cafeteria workers, the nurses' aides, and they were being paid by LA Unified School District 25,000 a year. Now, imagine trying to find a home when your annual income is 25000 You can't do it. And one out of every three of them were at risk of homelessness. Uh, and this is life for too many Californians. Uh, 
Uh, and part of it is a result of decades of effort to marginalize labor and weaken collective bargaining. Uh, so one of the things that I would do would be to strengthen collective bargaining. There's an umbrella package called the PRO Act, which is a whole host of reforms that would make it easier to uh, form a union, that would give unions more power to negotiate, that would put teeth uh, in the National Labor Relations Act, which is broken. Uh, what we've seen over decades now is a completely transformed workplace uh, that is going to be transformed further with AI, um, a, a Congress that has not kept pace with those changes, leaving millions of working families behind, uh, and the concentration of power in corporate America that makes it easier and easier to marginalize working people. Um, so how do you get the PRO Act passed? Well, we've got to pass in the House. It will not pass as long as there is a filibuster in the Senate. Um, so to me, job one in the Senate is doing away with the filibuster and first enacting voting rights. Uh, and in, the, <clears throat> in the, the category of self-criticism of the Democratic Party, uh, I believe it was a mistake, and I was making this case at the time, <clears throat> for us not to make voting rights the first issue that we addressed when we took the House and the Senate and the White House. Because if you don't have voting rights, if one party can, can disenfranchise people uh, which they are doing, particularly um, focused on communities of color, then the whole edifice comes crumbling down. Um, but, um, but that filibuster, which was used a generation ago to protect a different generation of Jim Crow, is being used today to protect a new generation of Jim Crow, but also to thwart the ability of working people to collectively bargain uh, for themselves. And so... Um, I think you can trace the decline of labor as a percentage of American households with the decline of uh, the ability of the American middle class to, to make a go of it. So that, I think, is really one of the core uh, elements I would work on would be to strengthen people's ability to join together and bargain. I mean, none of that is going to be possible without a change in who's in the Senate beyond California, right? Um you know, this is a pretty blue state. It stands to reason we Bless will you. have a Democrat mm -hmm. uh, in Diane Feinstein's seat, no matter whom. But like, how are you thinking about that? I mean, you have, I think, more money on hand than any other federal candidate, including Biden and Trump, which is insane. Um, obviously, you want to win this race. But like, are Democrats thinking like globally as well about this? Because if you have Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and people like that, you're not going to be able to change the filibuster. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, you're right, we're lucky to have a large cash on hand. Uh, the best best part of that, frankly, is that comes in contributions of less than $34 on average. Uh, but comes from hundreds of thousands of people. And so I'm very lucky to have the kind of grassroots support that I do. Um, now, I spent the last decade as, uh, as the battleground finance chair. I had different titles over the decade. But basically, someone whose job it was to elect Democrats in other and more difficult parts of the country. Yeah. So this is what I've been doing. Um, and it, it really has been a great opportunity because I've met a great many of these candidates, now office holders, uh, but I've also gotten a sense of what are the challenges, what are the issues affecting um, Americans all over the country, 
And how do we win over people that we've lost in, in the past? You know, the answer to your question is we both have to win, over, win more you know, uh, Democrats to office, but we also have to win over more voters who used to vote Democratic and who don't now. And, you know, let me give you an illustration, because I want to be part of a, not just a Democratic majority, but a durable Democratic majority. Today, we become the majority when we win a wave election and we hang on for dear life as long as we can, and then we lose it. But if we're going to be a durable majority, it means we need to start winning in places we've been losing, and that also means we need to start winning again in rural America. And I've been spending a lot of time campaigning in the Central Valley, which, if it was its own state, would be the poorest state in the Union. There is acute unmet need in the Central Valley. And, you know, I tell you, I was, I was doing a meet and greet there, and one of the local right-wing stations sent a camera crew uh, to ask me what passes for journalism in the right wing. And uh, the reporter puts the microphone in front of me, and I think the first question he had was, Kevin McCarthy says you're a liar. What do you say about that? <laughs> and... Uh, I, I don't know how I initially answered. I think I said something along the lines of, well, I guess coming from Kevin McCarthy, he intends that as some form of a compliment. Um, but, but I said, Here, here's, what I, here's what I think. Here's what I think is significant. There are thousands of people here who can't drink their own water. Um, because the aquifers are so depleted, we're sucking water out of the bottom of aquifers, and it's sucking manganese into the water. Waste ponds at dairy farms are being flooded, and it's washing nitrates in the water supply. There are thousands of people here who can't drink their own water, and he could care less. Um, there, are, so there is some of the worst air quality in the Central Valley of anywhere in the country. Um, and there's a whole generation of people in the Central Valley growing up with asthma as a result, uh, and he's not doing anything about it. Um, rural hospital, hospitals are in trouble. The hospital in Madera just shut down, and he's done nothing to get it reopened. And if Kevin McCarthy won't represent his constituents in the House, I'll represent them in the Senate. Um, and... I really think that this is the case we need to make throughout America to win these hard races like in Montana but elsewhere um, so we can elect more Democrats, so we can get rid of the filibuster, so we can restore reproductive freedom to millions of Americans, uh, so we can restore voting rights, so we can change, rebalance the, con the, the composition of the Supreme Court by enlarging it. Uh, these are some of the things that we can do um, without the filibuster. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this race and, and the other candidates. Um, Barbara Lee from the East Bay has represented uh, probably parts of where you grew up for a very long time. Katie Porter in Orange County. Um, you guys have, I think, between 95 and 99 percent voting records, similar voting records. What's the case? And this is actually an audience question to you. What do you think is the biggest difference between you three? I think the biggest, first of all, I think my colleagues are terrific. I think they're really great colleagues and members of Congress. Barbara Lee and I go back to our days in the state legislature together, and we've worked together on housing issues, on HIV-AIDS issues, on foreign policy issues. I think the principal difference between the three of us is, is one of effectiveness um, and, and leadership. Um, 
And we're really running on my record of getting things done. Uh, I'm proud to have built mass transit and built an early earthquake warning system for the West Coast uh, of legislation I authored uh, to bring uh, new and up-to-date textbooks to our schools in California and bring a patient bill of rights to California, legislation I've authored to uh, protect press freedom and attack nuclear proliferation, the millions I brought back to California to address homelessness and mental health challenges. Um, I have a very long record of actually getting things done. We have three progressives running. The question is, who has a record of actually making progress and getting things done? Uh, so this is what we're, we're running on, and also leadership. Um, we are at a fragile moment in our history. Um, in a fight over the preservation of our democracy. And one of us has been in the middle of that fight. Um, and, and I think Californians are used to and want, again, um, a senator who's in the middle of the fight uh, and willing to take all the incoming that comes along with that. Um, and that's what I've done in the House, and that's what I'll do in the Senate. curious, and so as an audience member, I mean, we discussed what a lightning rod you have become on the right. Um, I think it's interesting because, you know, thinking about your bio, you're a former prosecutor, um, you know, coming from law enforcement, like it's ironic, but I, I could actually see a scenario where some Republicans might vote for Porter or Lee over you because of the way that this has played out. So if you are elected, like, how then do you try to bridge some of those gaps? How do you try to work with folks um, on the other side of the aisle, given the history there. Yeah. Well, you know, the, one of the things that, that uh, my record demonstrates is you can get things done even in the most uh, controversial, partisan-divided times. Um, and the mass transit I built was in partnership with my Republican colleagues. The open space legislation I've been carrying uh, has had the support of Republicans um, the, I had an 18-year partnership with one of the most conservative Texans over NASA and space science. Um, even in the worst of times with Devin Nunes on the Intelligence Committee, um, every year we got our intelligence authorization bill passed on a bipartisan basis. Uh, and so you have to be able to compartmentalize. You have to be able to say, I'm going to differ with you on this and I'm going to fight to the teeth on this, but let's work together on this. And, you know, it's still possible to do that in the House uh, for people, but the House has become a basket case. Mm -hmm. uh, I, th I think the, the Senate is a place where it is still more conducive to getting things done and delivering for people, which is one of the things that really attracts me about the Senate. You know, I found even during the, the first impeachment trial, when I was the lead manager, Republican senators coming up to me during the recesses to tell me what a great job I was doing. Uh, and I, um, I never betrayed the, those confidences. Uh, I had people, Republicans, come up to me during the censure and apologize for what they were doing. And I wouldn't betray those conferences either. Um, but I, I do think that in the Senate, uh, there's more of a willingness to focus on, you know, what can be achieved, yeah. um, which I really look forward to. What 
just thinking about some of the biggest issues here, um, you know, obviously the president and backed by Congress has been a huge ally to Ukraine in their fight against Russia. Um, and yet we're seeing a lot of the Republican candidates say in the presidential race that they would, you know, strip money. We've seen in the recent Defense Act uh, a willingness by Republicans to take out some of the funding the president has promised. And I just wonder, I mean, the longer this goes on, how how will you be talking about making the case to Americans? Because I think there are people who fully support Ukraine, but might be skeptical when they do look around and see all the challenges at home. Yeah. Well, um, I'm I'm glad that the center is holding when it comes to Ukraine, uh, because I do think Ukraine's struggle is deeply important to Americans. Um, It's deeply important to us, or it should be, because uh, of our proud heritage of championing and supporting democracy. Not certainly an unblemished record of supporting democracy, but this is the biggest test case outside of our own borders uh, on democracy. If Russia can be successful in remaking its map with military force, what will that say to Xi and China about remaking the map in Southeast Asia and Taiwan? Or what will it say to Erdogan in Turkey or to Aliyev in Azerbaijan uh, or other despots about their ability to uh, go to war to remake their borders. So I think it's enormously important. Uh, we also, um, when we persuaded Ukraine to give up its nuclear weapons, uh, as we did in 1994, we assured Ukraine that we would help guarantee or assure their territorial integrity. Um, if... Um, Ukraine were to uh, lose this war and lose more of its territory, what will that say to other nations about uh, their nuclear aspirations? And, uh, and so I, I think there are innumerable reasons from our national security, from our values uh, and other perspectives why this is an important fight. Um, those who would say we're not investing enough in our own human infrastructure are also so right. Um, you know, I look at childcare, um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of focus on the unaffordability of, uh, of housing. Nobody can afford childcare either. Uh, I mean, it's basically the same cost as housing. A lot it, of it's the same cost as housing. It has a particularly deep impact on women and their ability to enter the workforce and their career uh, longevity and glass ceiling. Um, And while I'm very proud of what we did with the infrastructure bill, uh, the human infrastructure is even more important than the physical infrastructure. And so I'm working on a variety of bills to uh, bring down the cost of child care, to increase the supply of child care, uh, to increase the training of child care educators, because this is also a vital investment that we've neglected in our human infrastructure. Um, But I think we have to do both. We have to support Ukraine, and we also have to make a much more massive investment in our own infrastructure. Um, another audience question, is there anything that can be done in the House or Senate to ensure funding continues for public health, continued COVID research, vaccines, and treatment? And yeah. like? Well, the, the, the big test will come when we have a likely shutdown of the government. Um, I, I don't have a lot of confidence in McCarthy's ability to uh, to pass a budget 
that avoids a shutdown. Now, we did manage to get a, the debt ceiling lifted. Uh, that was a, this was actually one of the uh, few votes we've had recently where I've differed with my two House colleagues. They voted against raising the debt ceiling. I voted for it. Um, I think a, a default would have been absolutely catastrophic. Um, and much as there were things in the package I didn't like, um, if I uh, allowed myself the luxury of voting against it and it failed, it would have been a disaster. Um, but uh, but I, I think the Republicans will be much more willing to shut down the government than they were to default. Uh, and we will be in a sort of new brinksmanship uh, where they will seek to use keeping the government open in the same way they sought to use the debt ceiling as leverage to make cuts that they don't have the votes to accomplish otherwise. And so this will be where the fight will be. And, um, and I will be doing everything in that fight uh, to make sure that we don't um, uh, disinvest uh, the nation's resources from the most vulnerable people in the country, because that's who ends up getting hurt. And, um, and so I, I, uh, that's the, that is the point where people can weigh in, uh, and people do need to speak out. They need to speak out to their representatives. If they can speak out to others as well, um, I know that you know here in San Francisco, you're not going to have a an issue with your representative. You have the best there is. Um, but I've seen a lot of very creative things done uh, in my district, for example, when the Affordable Care Act was up, uh, and my constituents deeply cared about it and wanted to see it passed. Um, they were lobbying Lisa Murkowski, and they were doing so not by calling Lisa Murkowski because she's not going to care right. what my constituents think. They were calling Alaskans hmm. that they had identified as supportive and asking those Alaskans to call their representative. And so there are organizations, this was done through the LGBT Center in my district, but there are a lot of organizations who are um, using clever and force-multiplying ways to have an impact on the policy debates in Washington. Yeah. Sticking with another public health issue, abortion, um, I'm curious what you think Democrats should be doing right now, both at the state levels, where I know there's a lot of battles coming on, but at the federal level. Yeah. Um, well, you can tell a democracy is in trouble when you start to lose rights, not gain them. And, um, and this may be the first right to the fall, but it, it won't be the last under this Supreme Court. Uh, so there are some very abortion-specific things we can do and should do. Um, I'm a co-sponsor of legislation Judy Chu has been championing to create a national right to abortion. Um, and, uh, but I think even more broadly, because there are so many other rights and freedoms that are at risk, um, I'm one of the leading co-sponsors in the House of a bill to expand the size of the Supreme Court. Um, and uh, I, I think the Supreme Court needs a code of ethics, an enforceable code of ethics. I think there should be term limits on the Supreme Court. And I think, and I think we need to expand the Supreme Court, and Hank Johnson and I are carrying the legislation to do that. Um, I recently got in a, quite a debate on the Judiciary Committee when I offered an amendment to uh, enforce a, a code of ethics on the Supreme Court, which, of course, the Republicans voted down. But what really incurred their wrath is when I said that Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump 
uh, and most particularly Mitch McConnell, had stacked, had packed the Supreme Court. Uh, and they were quite indignant. Oh, no, 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 they didn't pack the court. That's what Roosevelt tried to do. And I said, there's more than one way to pack a court. And they did it. And they did it. And we can either just accept that and decide that a whole generation of Americans, including my kids, are going to have their entire adult life under a reactionary and partisan court, or we can do something about it. And the do something we can do is by expanding the court. Um, and I had one of the committee members, uh, one of the Democrats on the Judiciary Committee, tell me uh, a few weeks ago, Adam, you're the perfect messenger for an expanded Supreme Court. And then like a mic drop just walked away without any explanation. <laughs> and, but I, I suspect that what, what they had in mind reminded me of something that the Republican leader in the state legislature, a guy named Jim Brolty, once said to me, when I was a state senator, he came up to me on the Senate floor one day and he said, Adam, you're the worst kind of Democrat. You're the worst kind of Democrat. And I said, why is that, Jim? And he said, because you're just as progressive as the rest, but you sound so damn reasonable. <laughs> uh, but honestly, I think if we're going to get people to even consider an expansion of the court, when all that people remember about expanding the court is that Roosevelt tried it, it was called packing and it was bad, you have to approach it in a certain way. And part of, uh, part of that is by making people understand that, yeah, packing the court is bad, and they did it. Mm. And the only question now is whether it's unpacked and unstacked and rebalanced. Uh, and we've changed the size of the court six or seven times in our history. It doesn't require amending the Constitution. But, but expanding it will be what's necessary if we're going to have a court that looks anything like the country. Um, and, and if I could just open the aperture a bit more and explain why we got such a bad and reactionary and partisan court. And it's because of two other structural problems in our democracy. One is the gerrymander in the House, um, which results in a minority of Americans often controlling the House. The overweighting of the least populous states in the Senate which means a minority of Americans also often control the Senate, and an electoral college, which means that the president is often someone that was supported by uh, a minority of Americans. And you put those three together, those three anti-democratic uh, forces together, and you get a Supreme Court that is now the least representative body in the land. Um, and there are things that we can do about it, things that we should do about it, uh, we need to be laying the groundwork for that now. Uh, Republicans took 40 years to overturn Roe v. Wade, and they did it. Um, we need a, a, an immediate plan, a midterm and a long-term plan uh, to restore balance to the court and to restore our democracy. I want to ask you about something happening here in California um, that kind of speaks to the larger culture wars. And this is in Temecula. You have a school board um, who just essentially have rejected the state's curriculum um, for social studies for elementary school based on the fact that there's a supplemental teaching material that talks about Harvey Milk, the you know slain civil rights, gay rights later. 
The governor, Governor Newsom, has stepped in and essentially threatened to find the district, to force them to take the books. Um, you know, and I think there's a lot of Democrats who support Newsom's point of view. But I also wonder if it's kind of the flip side of what we're seeing with like a Ron DeSantis in Florida. Like, where should Democrats draw the line between something like local control, this is a duly elected board, and trying to ensure that, you know, the sort of majority's values in this state are taught and taught accurately. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I don't think we want, on the one hand, the federal government to take over education. Uh, we have a long tradition, strong tradition of local control of education, but I do think there are certain minimum standards that both the federal and the state government can set. Um, and, you know, standards that are protective of people that combat discrimination I think are appropriate for for the federal and state governments uh, to focus on. Um, at the federal level, I focused on fully funding uh, IDEA, which means fully funding special education, as maybe the most important thing the federal government could do. When we imposed the mandate in education that schools provide special ed, it was the right mandate to provide. And again, I thought that was an important and proper step for the federal government to say, you've got to provide education for everyone. But um, but we've never lived up to the promise that we made that we would fully fund it. Uh, and that has put enormous financial pressure on school districts. But, but I do think that the governor and the legislature uh, ought to make sure that we're not, we're not uh, discriminating in our, our teaching, that we're not uh, perpetuating stereotypes and bigotry in our teaching. I think that's fully appropriate. Um, I also want to say that what the Republican presidential candidates are doing, what Republican legislatures are doing, is just so utterly shameful. There's a pernicious competition going on. Um, and you see it most visibly in the Republican presidential field as to which candidate can most successfully demonize and dehumanize the LGBTQ community and most particularly trans community members and most particularly trans children. And it is just awful. Uh, I think you can measure society by how it treats its least, by how it treats its most vulnerable citizens. And by that standard, we are not measuring up. Um, one of the things that was so wonderful, uh, being in the Pride Parade here in San Francisco with Nancy Pelosi, was, was not just seeing all that, that love for Nancy Pelosi here, but also seeing 400,000 people come together to celebrate and love each other for who they are. And it was such a potent um, antidote to all the hate mm -hmm. we see in other parts of the country. Um, I, I was just really proud to be part of it. And, um, and, and speaking of the speaker, and I neglected to mention this earlier, um, you asked what distinguishes the field. Um, Nancy endorsed me on the first day of the campaign. Now about 60% of the California House Democrats have endorsed me. The others are largely staying out. This is very unusual. Um, normally, a state delegation doesn't get involved when more than one of its colleagues are running, and I'm running with two great colleagues. Mm -hmm. But they've made a judgment about who they believe will be most effective in the Senate to get things done for California. Uh, the Speaker has been particularly vocal about the need now that she's no longer the speaker for more champions of the state 
uh, in the Congress. And, uh, and they've looked at the field and they've made a collective judgment about who they believe is effective, will be effective. Uh, and I think that's, that's also what Californians are going to be looking for. We only have time for about one more question, Congressman. Um, assuming you make it through the gauntlet of this primary and <laughs> November election and become a U.S. senator, what would you do on day one? What would be your first uh, move in the Senate? Uh, it would be voting rights. Um, I, I hope... Uh, I hope that I um, take office in the Senate when we have a majority in both houses. Uh, and we can do what we should have done the last time we controlled it all, which is pass voting rights, do away with the gerrymander in the House, dismantle these um, deliberate obstacles to voting um, erected to prevent people of color from voting. Um, I mean, they are shutting down polling places in urban centers to try to make it difficult for people of color. They are trying to stop Sunday voting so that people can't go from church to the polls, uh, in Wisconsin, when the Republicans controlled everything, they changed the law so that if you're a student in Wisconsin and you move from one dormitory to another, you have to re-register to vote. Uh, and you can see the precipitous fall-off in voting. Uh, and, and you'll remember just a few months ago, one of the Republicans, I can't remember, one of Trump's innumerable lunatic lawyers, um, speaking and openly admitting, you know, if young people vote, if young people vote, we're screwed. Um, and so, you know, this is deliberate, uh, and it's, it's blatant. And so to me, job one is, uh, making sure that we're making it easier for people to vote, not harder. And we go after all this disenfranchising of people of color. Uh, that I think has to be priority number one. And I also would like to see pass legislation. I got passed in the house last session, the protecting our democracy act, which is our own set of post-Watergate reforms um, that address everything from the restoring the independence of the, uh, of the Justice Department from the White House after Trump tore it down, uh, restoring Congress's ability to uh, do oversight and enforce its subpoenas, attacking problems of the, you know, the temporary appointment of people to avoid Senate confirmation, the whole host of abuses, um, uh, but but I think uh, also, and, and, and I, I mention this because the three existential issues I'm focused on, our democracy, our economy, and our planet, uh, is dealing with climate. Um, I'm working now to try to help Californians get insurance, which is increasingly difficult as insurers are not insuring people in California. But But I think that science and technology give us the potential to get ahead of the tipping point. But only if we stop incentivizing the fossil fuel industry, which is killing us, and we would dramatically incentivize renewable energy, uh, are we going to get past this tipping point. We will leave it there. Congressman Adam Schiff, thanks for coming to San Francisco. May I have one last yes. word? Um, <laughs> and and I, I say this because I know a lot of people are kind of in despair about where we are as a country. Uh, we're going to get through this. I have every confidence we're going to get through this. And I was asked earlier today at a different function, you know, who do I really look up to that I've served with in Congress? And the first person I mentioned was your representative, Nancy Pelosi. But the other I mentioned was John Lewis. 
And I, I, think about, I think about John for a lot of reasons, but I think about him these days most particularly because I never saw him have a bad day. I never saw him anything less than fully optimistic about the country. And, and I think if he could be optimistic about the country, seeing what he has seen, living the life he has led, then I can be optimistic too. Uh, we're going to get through this. We are going to look back on this time, I promise you. I promise you. We will look back on this time and we will say to ourselves, how in hell did that guy ever become president of the United States? Um, what, what on earth were we smoking? Um, the only question is how soon do we get to that point? Um, and I think what we do in this moment will determine how quickly we get there. Uh, and I thank you all for coming today. I thank you for being engaged. And I would be honored to have your vote. Thank you very much. Congressman Adam Schiff. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks to our audience at home. You can always find more about these events at CommonwealthClub.org. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Thanks for being here. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.